Well, good morning again. So last week in Ephesians chapter 1, we looked at the first half of the chapter where we saw that Paul has this explosion of praise, and he's talking about all the things that Jesus has done, is doing, and will do for us. And when we get to the second half of chapter 1, Paul moves from this sort of explosion of praise to this explosion of prayer. And he begins just by talking about prayer, but then it's like he can't help himself. It's like you ever, you start talking about something, all of a sudden you want to actually do that thing. You start talking about your favorite sport, you want to go play. You start talking about your favorite restaurant, next thing you know you're in the car driving to get some food. And Paul is talking about prayer, and all of a sudden he just starts praying. And I love this prayer. One of my favorite things about the entire book of Ephesians is the prayers of Paul. And they're just so wonderful, and they're so informative, and they're so helpful for us. And I don't know how you feel about your prayer life. I don't know how you feel about praying. But our staff is reading a book together right now. And this past week, one of the uh, chapters talked about how when it comes to prayer, none of us are experts. We're all beginners. And that helped me. I hope that will help some of you. Because there's uh, maybe this pressure of like, I've been a Christian for a long time. I should be an expert at praying by now. But there is something about the fact that we're all still beginners at prayer. We're all still learning how to do this. And we're going to learn together this morning as we look at this passage in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to learn about the answer to a very important question, which is this. What should we pray for? What should we pray for? And the first thing that we learn from this passage is that we should pray to know God better. Let me straighten this out. There we go. We should pray to know God better. Verse 15, Paul writes these words. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere. Now, let me just pause here for a second. Remember, Paul spent almost three years with the church in Ephesus. And some people read this verse and they, think, and they actually say Paul didn't write Ephesians. And the reason why they think Paul didn't write Ephesians is because this sounds like Paul has, doesn't have firsthand experience with these people. Ever since I first heard. It's almost like he's hearing it secondhand. But what has really happened is it's been years since Paul has been in Ephesus. And so he's writing to a church that has grown so much since he's been there. So he's writing to many people who he never actually met. And he's hearing about the faith of all the new believers in Ephesus. That's what Paul's doing here. He says, I have not stopped thanking the Lord or thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. We pray to know God better. Whenever my, you know, when my girls ask for help, it's kind of like as they've gotten older, the reasons for which they ask for help have changed. Okay? So when they were little, they mostly would ask for help when they couldn't reach something. Daddy, I need your help. I can't get that. And then as they got a little older, it was, it's not that they couldn't reach it, it's that they couldn't find it, which meant they hadn't looked yet, but they still wanted to ask. Right? We've, we've put this new rule in our house. You have to search for something for 60 seconds before you ask mom or dad where it is. That's the new rule, right? That's a little parenting tip for you guys. Uh, when they can't reach something, when they can't find something, now they come to me when they can't understand something, which sometimes I can help. Like my fifth grader, I, she, she brought me her math homework the other day, and I was in a panic, and I was like, but I actually recognized it. I'm like, oh, this is just dumb. Decimals and multiplying by 10, I can do this. I can move decimals. But my eighth grader, forget about it. She brings me her, her math homework. I don't have a clue. So, but then the main reason they come to me at this point in, my life, in, in their life is not because they can't reach something, find something, or understand something. It's because they can't afford something. <laughs> and they want my help. When we ask somebody for help, it means that we realize we can't do it on our own. We can't reach it. We can't find it. We can't understand it. We can't purchase it. So when we pray, 
When Paul says, I'm praying for you that you will know God better, here's what he's teaching us in that moment. We can't do it on our own. We cannot know God and understand God the way that we should on our own. We have to pray for something that we cannot have. We need, he said, we need spiritual wisdom and insight, which means we cannot give it to ourselves. In fact, um, in the passage, he calls God the Father, or, or the glorious Father, which can also be translated Father of glory, which means that he himself possesses all of the glory as the Father, and he's the one who reveals it to us. And so part of our prayer life should be, God, reveal your glory to me. Because I can't find that on my own. I can't figure it out on my own. Spiritual wisdom, the phrase that Paul uses here, means wisdom that is given by the Spirit of God. And so all of this means is that we cannot know God unless God helps us. In other words, it takes God to know God. It takes God to love God. It takes God to serve God. You've probably heard me say here at Trinity before, we don't grow alone we grow in community, right? We don't grow on accident. We have to have a plan. But I would add to that after studying this passage, we don't grow without the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is not revealing the Father to us, we do not grow. And Paul isn't just talking about a head experience. He's talking about an actual heart-level experience with God. And this is not something we can just work towards, although we must, but we must pray for it. And so when is the last time, as I was studying this passage this week, I thought to myself, when's the last time I prayed this prayer? God, help me to know you. I want to know you more. And most of the time when we pray, let's be honest, we come with our hands open like a kid at the candy jar. God, I could use this, and I would like that, and this blessing, and this healing, and this touch, and this situation. And that's all fine, of course. But Paul, you know, what's interesting about Paul is if you study his prayers, Paul never prays in all of his epistles. He never prays once for a change in circumstances. He always prays that God would do an inner work within him so that that moment would not be lost or wasted for the purpose of the kingdom. And I would guess, if your prayer life sounds anything like mine, many times we have it reversed. We're always praying for a change in circumstances when really what we need to pray in every circumstance is, God, I just want to know you better. If you're bringing me on a mountaintop so I can know you better, thank you. But if you got me in the valley so I can know you better, thank you. But what we need most is not to see change, but to be changed. And so Paul is teaching us here. We need to pray all the time. We need to pray before we read scripture. Don't just open up our Bibles and start reading. But before we open the Bible, say, God, help me to understand what I'm about to read and let it change my life. Pray whenever we make a big decision, whenever we make any decision. Pray before we do anything. We need to pray to know God better. And in real life, to know someone better, we know we have to spend time with them. We have to listen to them. You know, when you're first dating someone or you're first becoming friends with someone, you can't do all the talking, right? That's not how you get to know someone. If you really want to get to know someone, you got to shut your mouth for a little bit and you got to listen and you got to ask some questions. And it's the same thing with knowing God. And when we come to God in prayer, most of the time I think we just fill the space with our words. But is it possible that sometimes in prayer we should just listen, just be still? In the same book that we were reading as a staff that talked about how when it comes to prayer we're all beginners, this pastor from New York City named Rich Velotis, he was talking about some monastic traditions of spiritual growth. And one of the things he talked about was silent prayer. 
And he describes silent prayer. Let me see, did I write it down here? He describes silent prayer as just focusing our attention upon God through the simplicity of shared presence. So he talked about how, like, as a husband and wife, you know, when you're first married or when you're first dating, you know, well, let's just talk about the first date. Silences are bad at a first date, right? Silence means someone's uncomfortable. So you just kind of keep filling the silence, right? You don't want that awkward silence. But when you've been married for 10 years, silence is normal. (laughs) There's a lot of just being together. And so, you know, when I was first dating Aaron, if we were driving somewhere together, I would feel the pressure for conversation, conversation, conversation. I don't feel the pressure anymore. If we're driving somewhere and we're both silent, it's not, I don't assume she's angry with me. I don't assume there's a, there's a, there is a comfortability that develops amongst a person as your relationship matures where you don't have to fill the silence. You can just be together, right? Well, how is that reflected in our prayer life? Are we comfortable just being with God? Just simply being present with him and not having to like fill that space up with our words, And so I tried it this week. I came in here during an office hours and I sat over there somewhere and I tried to just do silent prayer. It's weird. Like, I I can't say I was a huge fan of it, but I realized maybe that means I need this practice. Just sit, be still, be aware. And in the book, Pastor Rich says that in silent prayer, you move from talking to listening, you move from doing to being, and you move from performing to just being present. And he said, if you will, if you will, you know, in silent prayer, because what will happen, right? We know this. When we try to be silent, what happens? Our minds fill with a hundred different things. And we get discouraged by the distractions. But he said this. He said, if you're distracted 10,000 times in 20 minutes of prayer, uh, well, actually, he didn't say this. A guy named Thomas Keating said, if you're distracted 10,000 times in 20 minutes of prayer, then you have to see it as 10,000 opportunities to return to God. <laughs> 10,000 opportunities to turn back. And so don't be destroyed and discouraged by your distractions. See them as opportunities to return to God repeatedly over and over in prayer so that we might know him better. And the test of how we know God better is seen actually in verse 15. I don't know if I put this in here. Yeah. Ever since I first heard of, look at, look at how Paul describes the church of Ephesus. Your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere. What is the test of genuine faith? It's these two things. That genuine faith is in the Lord Jesus and in nothing less and in nothing else. This faith is defined as strong only because of who it's in. It's not faith in your level of faith. Some people pray that way. If I can work up enough faith, then God will act on my behalf. That's actually placing faith in your faith and not faith in the Lord. What makes genuine faith so evident is that it is in the Lord Jesus. It's concretely placed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But then it's evidenced by your love for God's people Everywhere In Ephesus, this church was remarkably diverse, from Gentiles to Jews to rich to poor to men and to women to free and to slaves, and yet this church was known for their love for people everywhere. Now, what does this mean? It simply means that the test of how well we know God is our love for Jesus and our love for others. 1 John 4.10, the apostle John says, if you say you love God but you hate your brother, you're a liar. And that word brother is, is not narrow. It's not just your... It's not just your actual brother, your, your, your natural brother. That speaks of anyone that you're in any sort of relationship with. If you love God and you hate your neighbor, if you love God and you hate your spouse, 
If you love God and you hate your mom, if you hate your dad, if you hate, then you're a liar. Because the evidence of genuine faith is not just, oh, God, I love you so much, but I hate all these people. Can you get me out of here? <laughs> it's, God, I love you so much, and because I've been ch- I'm being changed by your love, I'm learning to love others. That's the test of genuine faith. See, an increase in our theology, in our faith, must lead to an increase in our love for Jesus and our love for others. Pray to understand and know God better. The second thing that Paul teaches us in this text is to pray to understand his riches. His riches. Let's look at verse 18. I pray, now this is where Paul begins to stop talking about prayer and begins to break into prayer. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I want you to look at this phrase. Paul says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light. And the implication is that there is a darkness within our hearts. That there's something that distracts us and keeps us from seeing what? The confident hope that we have. The confident hope. And one of the books I read said that hope, if you want to think of the word hope, hope is faith standing on its tiptoes. Hope is faith up on its tiptoes with expectation. And Paul says that you, you can have a confident hope, that you can be certain of what other people are not certain of. And how can we have that level of certainty? Because it is to those he called. Not to those who got their act together, not to those who are impressive. But if God called you to himself, then you can be confident in the hope that he has given to you. And we need Holy Spirit, we pray, Holy Spirit, flood my heart with light, the light of truth, the light of your presence, the light of your word, so that I might be confident of the hope I have in you. One of the things that leads us into sinful behavior and negative emotions is we lose sight of the confident hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And our hope is so easily shaken by the circumstances of this world, by the difficulties of our lives, by the things we don't like about our lives, the things we don't like about the people in our lives. And so we say, Holy Spirit, I need your light at work in my heart so that the confident hope that I'm called to will, it's weird. In most circles, it's your present activity that secures your future, right? You work hard now, you save your money now, you can retire comfortably. But in the kingdom, it's actually the reverse, It's not your present reality that secures your future. It's your future reality that secures your present. Does that make sense? It's what we know to be sure that actually allows us to walk through the mess that we all walk through day in and day out. And this is what it means to understand his riches. So there's there's two ways in which Paul actually talks about his riches. And the commentaries don't really agree I actually think it's, maybe it's both, so I'm just going to tell you both of them, and you can pick the one you like. But when he talks about riches, it talks about two things. One, the inheritance we have, but also the inheritance that we are, okay? So on one hand, there's an inheritance that we have because we've been adopted. We talked about it last week, every spiritual blessing. And when a child is adopted into the family or into a family, at that legal procedure, they are given the legal rights of all the naturally born sons and daughters, right? They have the last name. They have the inheritance. They have all of it. And so we have this uh, inheritance that we can be sure of living in the light of what we know is coming before us because an essential characteristic of Christianity is it's leaning towards the future. It's tilt toward the future. It stands sure on what's to come. And so there's an inheritance that we have in Christ for sure. 
But then also, and this is actually the one I think Paul probably means here, is there's the inheritance that we are. Have you ever thought of yourself as an inheritance? That, that, that you're the one that's waiting for someone else. And Paul says here that we, his people, are his glorious inheritance. That God has chosen to make you his inheritance. Yes, we belong to him, but there's a future day coming where he will truly and fully inherit his people. And we will live with him and we will walk with him and we will be with him. He is awaiting that day just as much as you are. Have you ever thought about that? Every now and then when life is hard and you're struggling and your physical body is struggling, I think in those times we think of heaven and we think of the new heavens and the new earth and the restored bodies, restored minds, restored souls, and we get so excited about being in the presence of Jesus one day. But you know Jesus is looking forward to that day just as much as you are. The Father is longing for that just as much as you are, if not infinitely more. Why? Because we are his inheritance. We are the ones that he's waiting for to fully receive the riches that we can experience. What all of this means is that you, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, you're far too rich in Christ because you have an inheritance and you are an inheritance. You're far too rich in Christ to lose your joy over the poverty of anything that will come your way in this life. You're far too rich in Christ to lose your joy over the poverty of pain, the poverty of sorrow, and these are real things, and they are impoverishing, I understand that the poverty of the struggle, the poverty of difficult relationships, the poverty of lost dreams and hopes and expectations. But if you're in Christ, those things are not less real to you, but you're too rich to lose all your joy over them. Okay, last thing here we learn. that Paul teaches us to pray to experience his power. This is the longest part of the passage. I'm gonna read verses 19 through 23. Paul says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power. So he's talked about knowing God, understanding his riches. Now he's talking about experiencing his power. The incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he, speaking of Jesus, is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come, both here and there, both now and then. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made Jesus head over all things for what purpose? For the benefit of the church. The authority that Jesus Christ received and the headship that Jesus has over us is for our benefit as his people. In the last verse, the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. I love that last phrase. That Jesus Christ fills all things everywhere with himself. In this passage, Paul is clearly talking about power. And he expresses God's power with four Greek terms. I'll just say them to you real quick. Probably won't say them correctly, but there's dynamis or dunamis, which speaks of potential power. It's stored power. It's power that is even yet to be seen, that there is power within God that he hasn't even had to show us yet. (laughs) We haven't seen the full extent of God's power. He hasn't had to roll up his sleeves and truly flex for us yet because there there is potential power still within God. Then there's the energia, which is the active power. This is the power that we experience. Then there's kratos, which is a power that speaks of rule or victory, that it's power that has been exercised in battle and power that is being exercised as he reigns and rules. And then the word iskis, which is the effective exercise of power, that not just does he have power, but the way in which God uses his power 
always accomplishes what it's supposed to accomplish. In other words, with God, there's no wasted power. Every ounce of his power that's been poured out in us and through us accomplishes what it's supposed to do. And Paul uses all four of these Greek words because he wants us to know it's stored power, it's active power, it's ruling power, and it's effective power. But what's most remarkable to me about what Paul says here is that this incredible power is not for just cosmic purposes. And this incredible power is not just power for power's sake. This is power with purpose. And the power that Paul talks about here is not to move mountains and not to create the universes and not to do all of this stuff, but it's power so that you and I might experience the life of Jesus within us. In other words... When Paul uses all these Greek words to talk about the greatness of God's power, here's what he's saying. It's not out there power, it's in here power. So now, if you're a believer in Jesus, what it means is all of that power we just talked about, it dwells within you. That power, that potential power, the active power, the ruling power, the effective power. It's not just power out there. It's not just power for power's sake. It's power in here that we might love and serve God and love and serve others. One thing a Christian can never say is I don't have the power to serve God. We may not have the desire always to serve God, but we don't lack the power because God has placed within us the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead to regenerate our hearts, to make us alive, to make us new, to give us new affections, new desires, and the power to serve him. And Paul chooses two historical events in this passage. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Two historical events to talk about power. And the first thing is he talks about the resurrection. He says the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And I didn't know this, but when I was studying this passage this week, the commentary has all basically said that it's not the greatest translation. It's not, Paul's not emphasizing that Christ was raised from the dead. As, the point is not that he was raised from a state of death. The better translation they were saying is that Christ was raised from the dead ones, from among and above the dead ones, that he was raised out from the dead ones. Why does that matter? Because this suggests that his resurrection is never to be viewed as an isolated event that happened, but as the first stage in a future resurrection. That Christ, with his resurrection, inaugurated all future resurrections. And the song, So Will I, says it this way. If you left the grave behind you, so will I. So when you think of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, don't think in terms of just an event that happened, but it was like the first domino that fell. And every believer that has passed since then is another domino in that line of experiencing the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And when your time comes and when my time comes to breathe our last breath on this air, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that dwells within us will come to its full fruition. And even the last breath of a believer is praise and glory to the power of God because the worst death can do to us now is is enter us into the presence of our Savior. The worst thing that death can do to us now is bring us into life. (laughs) It's all the power it has now because the power of Jesus Christ is at work within us. But then we see in this passage too the ascension of Jesus Christ that he is now seated at the right-hand side of the Father, seated not in an ordinary chair, but seated on a throne, which signifies lordship, and that he is reigning as the sovereign king of the universe, and not a single square inch of the universe is not under his rule. Second, he's seated at God's right hand. And Paul's not actually speaking about uh, positional. It doesn't matter if that's where Jesus actually is, but he's speaking of the right hand as a place of power and honor. 
Third, he's seated in heavenly places, which signifies prominence. He's far above all rule and authority and powers. And finally, in case there is any doubt, Paul adds this, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Which means this, Christ is not only, giving a, not only given a position above all others, but he's been given that position permanently. In other words, Christ doesn't just live forever, he reigns forever. This is the power that we are praying, God, let me experience that power. So friends, this is how we pray. God, help me to know you better, because I cannot do it on my own. Many of you work very hard to learn, and I'm glad you do. You're reading your Bible, you're coming to church, you're at Wednesday night classes, you're doing the Read Together plan. God bless you that all is stuff that the Spirit can use, but none of it's enough. We have to pray. Spirit, breathe on my learning. Breathe on my understanding. Otherwise, it will feed my arrogance. It will make me think I'm smarter than people. It'll, make, it'll gear me up to win arguments, but it won't change my heart. God, help me to know you better because only it takes God to know God, right? Number two, God, help me to understand your riches, the inheritance that I have and the inheritance that I am. And then lastly, God, help me to experience your power, not just Sunday morning, not just at the altar, not just as services, but help me experience your power every moment of every day, that resurrection power, that ascension power, that we someday will reign and rule with Christ where he is seated in heavenly places far above all things. Let's pray.